Chapter 23 of Sister Carrie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Sage. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. Chapter 23 A Spirit in Travail, One Rung Put Behind. When Carrie reached her room, she had already fallen prey to those doubts and misgivings which are ever the result of a lack of decision. She could not persuade herself as to the advisability of her promise, or that now, having given her word, she ought to keep it. She went over the whole ground in Hurstwood's absence, and discovered little objections that had not occurred to her in the warmth of the manager's argument. She saw where she had put herself in a peculiar light namely, that of agreeing to marry when she was already supposedly married. She remembered a few things Druitt had done, and now that it came to walking away from him without a word, she felt as if she were doing wrong. Now she was comfortably situated, and to one who is more or less afraid of the world, this is an urgent matter, and one which puts up strange, uncanny arguments. You do not know what will come. There are miserable things outside. People go a-begging. Women are wretched. You never can tell what happened. Remember the time you were hungry? Stick to what you have. Curiously, for all her leaning toward Hurstwood, he had not taken a firm hold on her understanding. She was listening, smiling, approving, and yet not finally agreeing. This was due to a lack of power on his part, a lack of that majesty of passion that sweeps the mind from its seat and fuses and melts all arguments and theories into a tangled mass and destroys for the time being the reasoning power. This majesty of passion is possessed by nearly every man once in his life, but it is usually an attribute of youth and conduces to the first successful mating. Hurstwood, being an older man, could scarcely be said to retain the fire of youth, though he did possess a passion warm and unreasoning. It was strong enough to induce the leaning toward him which, on Carrie's part, we have seen. She might have been said to be imagining herself in love when she was not. Women frequently do this. It flows from the fact that in each exists a bias towards affection, a craving for the pleasure of being loved, the longing to be shielded, bettered, sympathized with, is one of the attributes of the sex. This, coupled with sentiment and a natural tendency to emotion, often makes refusing difficult. It persuades them that they are in love. Once at home, she changed her clothes and straightened the room for herself. In the matter of the arrangement of the furniture, she never took the housemaid's opinion. That young woman invariably put one of the rocking chairs in the corner, and Carrie, as regularly, moved it out. Today she hardly noticed that it was in the wrong place, so absorbed was she in her own thoughts. She worked about the room until Druitt put in an appearance at five o'clock. The drummer was flushed and excited and full of determination to know all about her relations with Hurstwood. Nevertheless, after going over the subject in his mind the live-long day, he was rather weary of it and wished it over with. He did not foresee serious consequences of any sort, and yet he rather hesitated to begin. Carrie was sitting by the window when he came in, rocking and looking out. 
Well, she said innocently, weary of her own mental discussion and wondering at his haste and ill-concealed excitement, what makes you hurry so? Druitt hesitated, now that he was in her presence, uncertain as to what course to pursue. He was no diplomat. He could neither read nor see. When did you get home? he asked foolishly. Oh, an hour or so ago. What makes you ask that? You weren't here, he said, when I came back this morning, and I thought you had gone out. So I did, said Carrie simply. I went for a walk. Druitt looked at her wonderingly. For all his lack of dignity in such matters, he did not know how to begin. He stared at her in the most flagrant manner until at last she said, What makes you stare at me so? What's the matter? Nothing, he answered. I was just thinking. Thinking about what? she returned smilingly, puzzled by his attitude. Oh, nothing, nothing much. Well then, what makes you look so? Druitt was standing by the dresser, gazing at her in a comic manner. He had laid off his hat and gloves, and was now fidgeting with the toilet pieces which were nearest him. He hesitated to believe that the pretty woman before him was involved in anything so unsatisfactory to himself. He was very much inclined to feel that it was all right after all. Yet the knowledge imparted to him by the chambermaid was rankling in his mind. He wanted to plunge in with a straight remark of some sort, but he knew not what. Uh, where did you go this morning? he asked finally weakly. Why, I went for a walk, said Carrie. Sure you did? he asked. Yes, what makes you ask? She was beginning to see now that he knew something. Instantly she drew herself into a more reserved position. Her cheeks blanched slightly. I thought maybe you didn't, he said, beating around the bush in the most useless manner. Carrie gazed at him, and as she did so, her ebbing courage halted. She saw that he himself was hesitating, and with a woman's intuition realized that there was no occasion for great alarm. What makes you talk like that? she asked, wrinkling her pretty forehead. You act so funny tonight. I feel funny, he answered. They looked at one another for a moment, and then Druitt plunged desperately into his subject. What's this about you and Hurstwood? he asked. Me and Hurstwood? What do you mean? Didn't he come here a dozen times while I was away? A dozen times? repeated Carrie guiltily. No, but... What do you mean? Somebody said that you went out riding with him, and that he came here every night. No such thing, answered Carrie. It isn't true. Who told you that? She was flushing scarlet to the roots of her hair, but Druitt did not catch the full hue of her face, owing to the modified light of the room. He was regaining much confidence as Carrie defended herself with denials. Well, uh, someone, he said. You're sure you didn't? Certainly, said Carrie. You know how often he came. Druitt paused for a moment and thought. I know what you told me, he said finally. He moved nervously about while Carrie looked at him confusedly. Well, I know that I didn't tell you any such thing as that, said Carrie, recovering herself. If I were you, went on Druitt, ignoring her last remark, I wouldn't have anything to do with him. He's a married man, you know. Who? Who is? said Carrie, stumbling at the word. Why, Hurstwood, said Druitt, noting the effect and feeling that he was delivering a telling blow. Hurstwood? exclaimed Carrie, rising. 
Her face had changed several shades since this announcement was made. She looked within and without herself in a half-dazed way. "'Who told you this?' she asked, forgetting that her interest was out of order and exceedingly incriminating. "'Why, I don't know. I've always known it,' said Druitt. Carrie was feeling about for a right thought. She was making a most miserable showing, and yet feelings were generating within her which were anything but crumbling cowardice. "'I thought I told you,' he added. "'No, you didn't,' she contradicted, suddenly recovering her voice. "'You didn't do anything of the kind.' Druitt listened to her in astonishment. This was something new. "'I thought I did,' he said. Carrie looked around her very solemnly, and then went over to the window. "'You oughtn't to have had anything to do with him,' said Druitt, in an injured tone, "'after all I've done for you.' "'You?' said Carrie. "'You?' What have you done for me? Her little brain had been surging with contradictory feelings. Shame at exposure, shame at Hurstwood's perfidy, anger at Druid's deception, the mockery he had made of her. Now, one clear idea came into her head. He was at fault. There was no doubt about it. Why did he bring Hurstwood out? Hurstwood, a married man, and never say a word to her. Never mind now about Hurstwood's perfidy. Why had he done this? Why hadn't he warned her? There he stood now, guilty of this miserable breach of confidence, and talking about what he had done for her. Well, I like that, exclaimed Druitt, little realizing the fire his remark had generated. I think I've done a great deal. You have, huh? she answered. You've deceived me. That's what you've done. You've brought your friends out here under false pretenses. You've made me out to be... Oh, and with this her voice broke, and she pressed her two little hands together tragically. I don't see what that's got to do with it, said the drummer quaintly. No, she answered, recovering herself and shutting her teeth. No, of course you don't see. There isn't anything you see. You couldn't have told me in the first place, could you? You had to make me out wrong until it was too late. Now you come sneaking around with your information and your talk about what you have done. Druitt had never suspected this side of Carrie's nature. She was alive with feeling, her eyes snapping, her lips quivering, her whole body sensible of the injury she felt and partaking of her wrath. Who's sneaking? he asked, mildly conscious of an error on his part, but certain that he was wronged. You are, stamped Carrie. You're a horrid, conceited coward. That's what you are. And if you had any sense of manhood in you, you wouldn't have thought of doing any such thing. The drummer stared. I'm not a coward, he said. What do you mean by going with other men anyway? Other men, exclaimed Carrie. Other men? You know better than that. I did go with Mr. Hurstwood, but whose fault was it? Didn't you bring him here? You told him yourself that he should come out here and take me out. Now, after it's all over, you come and tell me that I oughtn't to go out with him and that he's a married man? She paused at the sound of the last two words and wrung her hands. The knowledge of Hurstwood's perfidy wounded her like a knife. Oh, she sobbed, repressing herself wonderfully and keeping her eyes dry. Oh, oh. Well, I didn't think you'd be running around with him when I was away, insisted Druitt. Didn't think, said Carrie, now angered to the core by the man's peculiar attitude. Of course not. You thought only of what would be to your satisfaction. You thought you'd make a toy of me, a plaything. Well, I'll show you that you won't. I'll have nothing more to do with you at all. 
you can take your old things and keep them. And unfastening a little pin he had given her, she flung it vigorously upon the floor and began to move about as if to gather up the things which belonged to her. By this, Druitt was not only irritated, but fascinated the more. He looked at her in amazement and finally said, I don't see where your wrath comes in. I've got the right of this thing. You oughtn't to have done anything that wasn't right after all I did for you. What have you done for me? asked Carrie, blazing, her head thrown back and her lips parted. I think I've done a good deal, said the drummer, looking around. I've given you all the clothes you wanted, haven't I? I've taken you everywhere you wanted to go. You've had as much as I've had and more, too. Carrie was not ungrateful, whatever else might be said of her. Insofar as her mind could construe, she acknowledged benefits received. She hardly knew how to answer this, and yet her wrath was not placated. She felt that the drummer had injured her irreparably. Did I ask you to? she returned. Well, I did it, said Druitt, and you took it. You talk as if I'd persuaded you, answered Carrie. You stand there and throw up what you've done. I don't want your old things. I'll not have them. You take them tonight and do what you please with them. I'll not stay here another minute. That's nice, he answered, becoming angered now at the sense of his own approaching loss. Use everything and abuse me and then walk off. That's just like a woman. I take you when you haven't got anything, and then, when someone else comes along, why, I'm no good. I always thought it would come out this way. He felt really hurt as he thought of his treatment and looked as if he saw no way of obtaining justice. It's not so, said Carrie, and I'm not going with anybody else. You have been as miserable and inconsiderate as you can be. I hate you, I tell you. I wouldn't live with you another minute. You're a big, insulting here she hesitated and used no word at all. Or you wouldn't talk that way. She secured her hat and jacket and slipped the latter on over her little evening dress. Some wisps of wavy hair had loosened from the bands at the side of her head and were straggling over her hot red cheeks. She was angry, mortified, grief-stricken. Her large eyes were full of the anguish of tears, but her lids were not yet wet. She was distracted and uncertain deciding and doing things without an aim or conclusion, and she had not the slightest conception of how the whole difficulty would end. Well, that's a fine finish, said Druitt. Pack up and pull out, eh? You take that cake. I bet you were knocking around with Hurstwood or you wouldn't act like that. I don't want the old rooms. You needn't pull out for me. You can have them for all I care, but, but George, you haven't done me right. I'll not live with you, said Carrie. I don't want to live with you. You've done nothing but brag around ever since you've been here. Oh, I haven't anything of the kind, he answered. Carrie walked over to the door. Where are you going, he said, stepping over and heading her off. Let me out, she said. Where are you going, he repeated. He was above all sympathetic, and the sight of Carrie wandering out, he knew not where, affected him, despite his grievance. Carrie merely pulled at the door. The strain of the situation was too much for her, however. She made one more vain effort and then burst into tears. Now, be reasonable, Cad, said Druid gently. What do you want to rush out for this way? You haven't any place to go. Why not stay here now and be quiet? I'll not bother you. I don't want to stay here any longer. Carrie had gone sobbing from the door to the window. She was so overcome she could not speak. 
Be reasonable now, he said. I don't want to hold you. You can go if you want to, but why don't you think it over? Lord knows I don't want to stop you. He received no answer. Carrie was quieting, however, under the influence of his plea. You stay here now, and I'll go, he added at last. Carrie listened to this with mingled feelings. Her mind was shaken loose from the little mooring of logic that it had. She was stirred by this thought, angered by that, her own injustice, Hurstwood's, Druitt's, the respective qualities of kindness and favor, the threat of the world outside in which she had failed once before, the impossibility of this state inside, where the chambers were no longer justly hers, the effect of the argument upon her nerves, all combined to make her a mass of jangling fibers, an anchorless, storm-beaten little craft which could do absolutely nothing but drift. Say, said Druitt, coming over to her after a few moments with a new idea and putting his hand upon her. Don't, said Carrie, drawing away, but not removing her handkerchief from her eyes. Never mind about this quarrel now. Let it go. You stay here until the month's out, anyhow, and then you can tell better what you want to do, eh? Carrie made no answer. You'd better do that, he said. There's no use packing up now. You can't go anywhere. Still, he got nothing for his words. If you'll do that, we'll call it off for the present, and I'll get out. Carrie lowered her handkerchief slightly and looked out the window. Will you do that? he asked. Still no answer. Will you? he repeated. She only looked vaguely into the street. Ah, come on, he said. Tell me, will you? I don't know, said Carrie softly, forced to answer. Promise me you'll do that, he said and we'll quit talking about it. It'll be the best thing for you. Carrie heard him, but she could not bring herself to answer reasonably. She felt that the man was gentle, and that his interest in her had not abated, and it made her suffer a pang of regret. She was in a most helpless plight. As for Druitt, his attitude had been that of the jealous lover. Now his feelings were a mixture of anger at deception and sorrow at losing Carrie misery at being defeated. He wanted his rights in some way or other, and yet his rights included the retaining of Carrie, the making her feel her error. Will you? he urged. Well, I'll see, said Carrie. This left the matter as open as before, but it was something. It looked as if the quarrel would blow over, if they could only get some way of talking to one another. Carrie was ashamed and drew it aggrieved. He pretended to take up the task of packing some things in a valise. Now, as Carrie watched him out of the corner of her eye, certain sound thoughts came into her head. He had erred, true, but what had she done? He was kindly and good-natured for all his egotism. Throughout this argument he had said nothing very harsh. On the other hand there was Hurstwood, a greater deceiver than he. He had pretended all this affection, all this passion and he was lying to her all the while. Oh, the perfidy of men! And she had loved him. There could be nothing more in that quarter. She could see Hurstwood no more. She would write him and let him know what she thought. Thereupon, what would she do? Here were these rooms. Here was Druitt, pleading for her to remain. Evidently, things could go on here somewhat as before, if all were arranged. It would be better than the street, without a place to lay her head. All this she thought of as Druitt rummaged the drawers for collars 
and labored long and painstakingly at finding a shirt stud. He was in no hurry to rush this matter. He felt an attraction to carry which would not down. He could not think that the thing would end by his walking out of the room. There must be some way round, some way, to make her own up that he was right and she was wrong. To patch up a piece and shut out Hurstwood forever. Mercy, how he turned at the man's shameless duplicity. Do you think, he said, after a few moments' silence, that you'll try and get on the stage? He was wondering what she was intending. I don't know what I'll do yet, said Carrie. If you do, maybe I can help you. I've got a lot of friends in that line. She made no answer to this. Don't go and try and knock around now without any money. Let me help you, he said. It's no easy thing to go on your own hook here. Carrie only rocked back and forth in her chair. I don't want you to go up against the hard game that way. He bestirred himself about some other details, and Carrie rocked on. Why don't you tell me all about this thing, he said after a time, and let's call it off. You don't really care for Hurstwood, do you? Why do you want to start on that again, said Carrie. You were to blame. No, I wasn't, he answered. Yes, you were, said Carrie. You shouldn't have ever told me such a story as that. But you didn't have much to do with him, did you, went on Druitt, anxious for his own peace of mind to get some direct denial from her. I won't talk about it, said Carrie pained at the quizzical turn the peace argument had taken. "'What's the use of acting like that now, Cad?' insisted the drummer, stopping in his work and putting up a hand expressively. "'You might let me know where I stand, at least.' "'I won't,' said Carrie, feeling no refuge but in anger. "'Whatever happened is your own fault.' "'Then do you care for him?' said Druitt, stopping completely and experiencing a rush of feeling. "'Oh, stop!' said Carrie. Well, I'll not be made a fool of, exclaimed Druitt. You may trifle around with him if you want to, but you can't lead me. You can tell me or not, just as you want to, but I won't fool any longer. He shoved the last few remaining things he had laid out into his valise and snapped it with a vengeance. Then he grabbed his coat, which he had laid off to work, picked up his gloves, and started out. You can go to the deuce as far as I'm concerned, he said, as he reached the door. I'm no sucker. And with that, he opened it with a jerk and closed it equally vigorously. Carrie listened at her window view, more astonished than anything else at this sudden rise of passion in the drummer. She could hardly believe her senses, so good-natured and tractable had he invariably been. It was not for her to see the wellspring of human passion. A real flame of love is a subtle thing. It burns as a will-o'-the-wisp, dancing onward to fairylands of delight. It roars as a furnace. Too often, jealousy is the quality upon which it feeds. End of chapter 23. Recording by Bob Sage.